you guys are at all like Adrian and I, um, maybe over the last decade here or there, we got in somewhere midway, but what dominated the TV um, largely around the 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock time slot once a week, I think it was on Thursday evenings, was a show that some of you might recall called American Idol. We got into that show at some point in time, and I can't remember, I think some, right when we finished seminary or something, and uh, we got dragged into it for a season of time, and then uh, bailed before the whole thing was canceled. But I draw your attention to that fact, not to embarrass myself and Adri, but for hopefully a greater purpose. Um, in, in other words, you probably, if you had been watching American Idol bits and pieces of it over the last decade of its dominance, then you probably were not watching with the mindset towards thinking, this is actually aiding my understanding of the biblical text. But I'm so here to encourage you that if you did spend time watching American Idol over the last decade, this morning will be the one time where that might aid in your understanding of the biblical text. Particularly speaking, in order to redeem your time having spent American Idol and my own, do you remember the audition episodes? Um, They were perhaps... um, the most entertaining pieces at, at, for, for two reasons. Uh, on the one hand, you recall contestants walk up and they're trying to become superstars. And they're standing before a panel of what seem to be superstars in their career and they're judging these hopeful superstars. And so they come in and you recall at that point in time, some would show up, as you remember, simply to have their two seconds of airtime. You knew they were joking. The whole thing was kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke. They would sing something that was absolutely horrendous. And for any of you who have not seen it, that's the point. It's a singing competition show. Someone's trying to become the next big-time superstar singer. And they would sing, and you knew it was a joke from the minute go, right? It was so horrendous. It was awkward from the minute, and then it was like, this person obviously does not believe in what they're doing, and then they had their two seconds of fame, and then it was over. However... More entertaining yet, or should I say awkward yet, were the individuals who would show up with a huge air of confidence about them as they entered into the room to be judged, and as though they postured themselves that they were getting ready to blow the doors off of this situation. And you remember they begin and they start to sing, and it goes incredibly south. And they are in their own realm, though, at that point in time, and they are getting ready. You know, they got their eyes closed, they're really going hard, and they're about to open their eyes to, of course, people weeping and wailing that are ready to sign a contract now. Cancel the show, right? Cancel the competition. They're convinced when they look out at the judges, they are going to get an immediate contract. These people with this sense of self-confidence. And yet... The judges, when the individual opened their eyes and looked at the judges, it was not quite as though they expected. They would then get, you know, ushered out. They were not going to even make it into the first round after the auditions. And then you remember the footage following some of that? The people with this sense of confidence, knowing that they had won a spot on American Idol, and somehow the judges just didn't get it correct. They would run out into the corridor and they would be screaming, right? Kicking things, overthrowing the trash cans in the hotel lobby areas where they just, they they cannot fathom that their greatness was not recognized by these so-called phony great people. 
they would then kind of bleep out their cursing and then somewhere they'd be outside finally when the cameras caught up with them because remember, this is all reality TV. The camera would catch up with them and they would be sobbing on the curbside somewhere where their entire life has just come crashing down. And all of us watching at home <laughs> as this, this, this awkwardness interaction of entertainment and fantasy is all kind of converging together would be shocked at what we would consider the individual's lack of self-awareness. You know, you watching at home, you saw them start singing and you knew this was not going to go well for them. And yet, there was a total disconnect between who they perceived themselves to be as the next future American Idol and, and who the judges in their position of having some competency about themselves were able to judge, or even as the onlookers from home through millions of people watching television were easily able to assess themselves. This individual in his lack of self-awareness. Now, we all struggle with self-awareness to some degree and uh, some way. You know, we, we never rightly perceive. I don't know how you perceive me and y- you don't know how I perceive you necessarily. <laughs> as, as we all have our interactions and no one's fully aware of exactly how another person is receiving them or understands them or thinks how they tick and work and so on and so forth. So we all struggle at certain points with self-awareness. Though the uh, analogy or, or example of American Idol is indeed extreme, if you come back from the extreme, all of us still struggle with this sense of self-awareness. If I could define self-awareness just for a moment, it's defined as, quote, having a clear perception of your personality. Having a clear perception of your strengths. A clear perception of your weaknesses. A clear perception of your thoughts. A clear perception of your beliefs, motivations, and emotions. I I guess the point of self-awareness is that that the beginning of the definition, a clear perception of reality about you and, and the web of relationships you have, your strengths, your weaknesses, your responses, your cues, your emotions, your abilities, your motivations. And these individuals with this absolutely shocking lack of self-awareness, if we come back from there, we could kind of now enter into the biblical text. So, so, so at this point in time, we would almost say, American Idol analogy, meet the disciples. These are kind of in the same room at this moment. These wild people auditioning and now enter in the disciples as well. This is what we're going to see in the text. Look at verse 46 as we begin just by way of introduction. Verse 46 says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, just stop for a moment because maybe you haven't been able to be with us for a few weeks as we've been kind of growing through Luke's gospel or maybe we just should, by way of review, brush up a little bit on what's been going on in the disciples' lives in just the last couple of weeks within this text. Not to mention, at this point in time, as we're about to review the text, keep in mind this sense of a shocking level of a lack of self-awareness on their part. They have been with the Lord now, at this point through Luke's gospel, roughly about two years. I mean, day and night. 
They have been sent out on mission. They have come back. They have seen our Lord. As they have heard him preach. They have seen him heal. They have seen him raise the dead. They have been with him now two years, roughly about this point. And now just look at not only the scope of two years of ministry, but look in like just the last couple of weeks. And it will shock all of us the same that an argument is seriously breaking out right now about which one of you is the greatest? Look at the text just briefly for a moment as we review how shocking it is or this sense of lack of self-awareness about the disciples regarding their argument amongst themselves. Look at verse 22 of chapter 9. So early on in the chapter, um, verse 22, here is where in verse 20, if you jumped up, there was that point of the confession where Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ of God. So it's, it's a huge climactic moment in Luke's gospel. And, and same for Mark. So it's, it's a very significant moment, right, where that then takes place. And so you think, great, they've got it. They get it. They know what they're saying. They know what they're about. They know who Jesus is and what he's all about. And then he affirms or confirms to Peter, you're right, Peter. And in verse 22, then, he explains what that means, And in verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chiefs, priests and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day raised. So he explains, yes, on the one hand, yes, I am a king. But remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago. I am a king on the way to the cross. This Peter gets the, you're the king. And then Jesus says, yeah, this way. And things begin to kind of get cloudy at that point. Look just down in verse 23 and following, he then explains to them what this means for them. This is how the disciples should have conceived of themselves and their role, their ministry, and of Jesus. As he is on his way to the cross as the king, so therefore, verse 23 and following, so also are all of you going to proceed in a difficult set of circumstances, in a difficult age that is passing away, you too will live like me. You will live a cruciform existence. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to recognize me as your king. You will follow a cruciform life as well. Now remember, by the time we get to verse 46 an argument breaks out out of who's the greatest. You're the greatest, Jesus. Right, I am. And and this is my my greatness. And and, and this is going to be your life. You're great. Which one of us is the greatest? Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. As you follow me, you also will live a cruciform existence. That's greatness. This is the pathway. And this, they're kind of still not hearing. But again, I don't think it's unique to them. How many of us still wrestle and don't really hear it? You move over into the transfiguration. So the text continues to build, and we're just doing a brief review of what the disciples should have been thinking about by the time they get to verse 46 and finding a shocking amount of a lack of self-awareness given the information and episodes that led up to the discussion in verse 46. But they're there at the transfiguration, and they see Jesus, our Lord, transfigured before them, right? And we've covered this twice in a sense, where, again, the heavenly light, just, just what is taking place metaphysically, the the the, the the light that is em- 
emanating from him, and yet they identify him and see him so clearly, but untold heavenly illumination upon our Lord and emanating from him at this point of the transfiguration. And immediately Peter says, we should make three tabernacles, right? And and so God in his mercy then surrounds them in a cloud and then gives them the word of clarity. This is my son. Listen to him. So there's still this sense of like appreciation, but a, a disconnect. Let us dwell here with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. This is great. So there's still this sense of appreciation yet confusion. Look after the transfiguration. This is where we were last week. Is they're kind of coming down. And, and I tried to express to you last week my sense of the mountaintop experience geographically, yes, but also symbolically, where up there in that Mount of Revelation... And transfiguration is the movement of the text symbolically as well, where there is an experience with God in this joyful experience of transfiguration, and then there is life in this age that is expressed as coming down from that mountaintop experience and how one is to live in the valley through faith and prayer. But look at verse 37. As they then come down on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, and then they see the, 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 the episode of the, of the boy, the teenage boy who was demon-possessed. And then by the time uh, Jesus enters into it, there's an argument that is broke out between the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples who were there. So here's the picture. Jesus is coming down with Peter, James, and John, and then the other disciples are here, and they're arguing with the chief priests and the scribes. They're in an entanglement over the issue of the failed exorcism. And so our Lord shows up, and as he speaks to them in a very exasperated tone, you look at verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to put up with you? And then he tells the Father, bring your son over here to me. Now, if, if, if you go back up in the text just a little bit to add clarity to what's going on, um, and, and maybe it's from, uh, the, yeah, it's from Mark's account, there was uh, a large crowd. Verse 38 in our text indicates that there was a crowd, but Mark indicates how large the crowd was. So, in other words, our Lord rebukes the disciples in a very public way. So, so that we get the, the rebuke correct, we recognize it's leveled at his own men. The father, you remember, is the contrast. He's the one who in desperate faith looks to Christ. But the disciples in presumptive faith acted alone in the exorcism. Don't worry, we got this. And so he shows up, and, and, and the father is beside himself. I asked your men, who are supposed to be able to do this, to do it, and they couldn't. And an argument's taking place, and Jesus turns to his men and says, you're faithless. You twisted generation. How long is this going to go on? So at this point in the text, after all of that, certainly you think, Well, they were acting inappropriately. Yes, indeed, even faithlessly and presumptuously. But they won't act like that anymore, right? You would think that in this text. You think, but they get it now. I mean, being embarrassed by Jesus right in front of the whole entire crowd who's standing around and watching him with his own men. And he turns to them and says, you faithless generation, 
How long do I have to put up with you? Okay, guy, bring your son over here to me. And then they're standing there kind of embarrassed, right? Certainly so. First of all, they didn't perform the exorcism, and that's embarrassing in and of itself. And then Jesus shows up and says, yeah, I know you didn't because you're faithless. And then it's like, well, that's an added point of embarrassment. So now as a reader, you're thinking, well, the next thing for them is repentance and humility. That's obvious where the episode is going. But remember American Idol? Sometimes you just cannot perceive yourself in the same way someone else is perceiving you. You think that cannot be the case here. There's a whole crowd of people, you know, possibly a thousand people gathered around. But look at the text. An argument about greatness. Again, verse 46 so Jesus heals the boy in the episode that was coming up before. And in fact, just jump up in the text just briefly and verse 43. So he, he gives the, fa- the boy back to his father. So this teenage boy w- was saved by Christ. The demon w- was, was conquered. Christ had cleansed and empowered and gave him back to the father. Verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, that adds to the contrast of, of the ineptness or, or the inability to see and perceive oneself in verse 46 because 43 says, everybody was indeed astonished, but not at the disciples, at the majesty of God. Now, continue through the text, it says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. So this again, they're, they're focused on Christ and he turns to his men and says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about it exactly. Not sure exactly what he meant. Now remember, he had already spoken that way in verse 22. And he explained it clearly about their life that was cruciform to come after him. But at this point in time, they're still kind of stumbling about and not sure as to what to say in follow-up to our Lord who is being handed over to the hands of sinful men. Their response to the entire thing? Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You see, think about the group just for a moment and think about ourselves. How low is the bar set within the group? to begin to argue one with another after all that has embarrassingly transpired. Which one of us is the greatest? Do you see our tendency to see ourselves is far more significant and important than we really are? The sense of pride of place and arrogance about us regardless almost, of reality. The the ability that we can simply be so self-deceived and think, again, we're able in and of our own strength. We're capable in and of our own mental faculties. We're powerful, strategic enough to be able to maneuver life's challenges. Our last option is prayer and faith. 
they should have already thought their immediate position was humility, prayer, and faith because he just explained to them that these kind of demons are only cast out. That is, life in the valley is only lived through faith and by prayer. He just told them that. But how quickly do we even come on Lord's Day and get nourished from his word yet again? Know our role. Understand humility and his greatness. Leave inspired and within five minutes radically do a reversal. One author commented, as I mentioned to you last week, about disciples in this context and says, how arrogant, how clueless they actually were about their own inadequacies. And this isn't just upon them. This is a portrait of us. He goes on to say, they didn't see how weak and how proud they actually were. You see, again, to mention, after two years of ministry, hearing the preaching of our Lord firsthand, seeing the miracles that flowed from that proclamation, they still were missing that the heart of the gospel is the cross. And for a disciple's life that looks to their Lord is a cruciform life. Again, he spoke to them about that. Look in verse 23, as I mentioned to you just before. And he said to all, that's the entire crowd that is gathered, not just the disciples, but certainly they were there. So he said to all of them, if anyone... Now, that's not to the exclusion of the twelve, of which they seem to think. Join yourself and your own heart and mind in the text. When this text goes out, do you see yourself there? Or do you think when it does occur that life gets difficult? He must not love. He must not care. He must not be here with me. Because again, that text is for everybody else who follows. Which is kind of the mindset of the disciples at this point in the text. Everybody else is going to live a life of let him deny himself, take up their crosses every day and follow Jesus that way. But out of us, which one of us is the greatest? Do you see the disconnect? Again, do we understand any greater at this point in the text? We have the entire narrative. We have, we have it already in recorded form. This is developing in real time for them. So in that sense, we really do have an advantage to see what the Word of God is teaching about these very concepts and how it's been recorded and written for our betterment. But how often also, as with them, we still fail to understand that the cross is all about giving up power, pouring out one's resources and serving with your life. This they seem to not understand. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. And they were afraid to ask him about what it meant. But how often we also 
fail to think of our life in crucified form that by his grace our life is about giving up power not at all cost pursuing it about pouring out our resources about serving with our lives but often questioning even among the saints which one of us is probably the greatest now if you think for a moment about the nature of the argument, um, it's probably pretty loaded, right? Um, when when they started, uh, argument started to ensue, you could see and hear Peter, James, and John. I mean, certainly they think that they are in the running for being the greatest. I mean, imagine the argument, the way that it's leveled. Um, they were just on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know? So they all get together and they're starting to argue about which one of us is the best. And they're like, well, we know who isn't. At this point in time, it's all of you who are here and didn't perform the exorcism. We know you're not. But I mean, for us, I mean, come on. Well, at least me, Peter, James, and John, at least the three of us, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we know we are better than you. Um, the rest of you were here with the scribes having their hands around your throats, embarrassing you in front of a large crowd of people. So you can hear how the argument would be framed and, 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 and how someone takes pride of place given circumstances. And we do the same. You look at someone in a set of circumstances, in the squeeze of life, and you think, well, that must be caused because you are not, or that might be to your own doing because you are, and then that sense of pride of place wells up. And it's the same thing here with the disciples. So we might not come and say, which one of us today, raise your hand, which one of us is the greatest? Um, But Dietrich Bonhoeffer commented in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, speaking about that, how that is the sin that Satan seeks among the saints, is that they quietly would stand and discuss with the mindset as they're listening to fellow saints with with the question of the disciples on their mind. I'm talking to you right now in time, but I'm really listening and analyzing between us which one of us is the greatest. And so the question of the text then becomes, how will we overcome this sinful lack of self-awareness? How will we come to understand what's at the heart of the cross is giving up power, pouring out resources and serving with our lives rather than pursuing power, taking hold of resources and serving no one. How will we overcome our sinful pride? And again, you recognize it's never like, well, this way and it will be gone forever. It's not done in like a moment of time where, you know, you wrote it down in a journal because you really meant it that day. It, it's, this, this is life in this age. This is the pilgrim's journey. It is done momentarily by grace through faith. So how will we overcome or continue to fight, perhaps we should say, sinful pride? Um, well, our Lord, notice verse 47 and 48, and this, this, this is how he's going to help us and help the disciples get past this pride of place. 
um, brilliantly. Look at what he does next. So verse 47 is, is again, back to D, uh, Bonhoeffer's comment about how that's the question in the mind of the believers as they get together. Which one of us is the greatest? And, and this is what our Lord knows, verse 47, but Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. That it's not hidden from the Lord. He knows you're asking that question. He knows you're manipulating this conversation to go this particular way. He knows you're presenting yourself in this particular light. He knows that you're judging another person due to set of circumstances in life and inadequately giving an account for what you have no business making an account of. He knows the way you got there. He knows how your frame of mind is. He knows the reasoning of your heart. So he does with the disciples. He doesn't wait to to ask, but rather verse 47. Notice what he does then in response. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. Now, just notice once again, I, I won't keep belaboring the point of mountain and valley, but I am suggesting that these passages move even with proximities. So in other words, look at, it's not insignificant that he put the child by his side. Which is in contrast to the men who are struggling with greatness. There's significant in this, significance in the movement. Verse 48. So he brings the child close to him in contrast to his men and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. How will he help them overcome in this movement? How is he helping them overcome their inability to see themselves? Their sinful pride And the answer is, he illustrates it to them. That's what he's doing. He's illustrating to them their own inability to see themselves clearly. Jesus is bringing conviction and clarity to their sinful pride and self-promotion by bringing nearest to himself, out of their group, the direct opposite of who they themselves were being in that moment. The absolute antithesis, 180 degrees from where you men stand right now is where I stand. At the heart of the gospel stands the cross. And you men and and, and folks, believers, assess things externally. Seek greatness rather than humility. Humility. You seek the throne, but not by way of a cross. Jesus is illustrating that if they are to then be his disciples, if they are to follow him with their lives, then they must serve the lowly, which is symbolized in the child. Not just acknowledge the lowly, but serve them 
The disciples, if they are to follow the Lord in cruciform discipleship, then they must get off their high horses and serve the needy. Stop arguing about greatness and places of prominence and serve the afflicted. Why? Because this is who Jesus came to deliver. This is who he himself identifies with. Do you see how, 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 how backward it is to serve the Lord, to love him and lay hold of him, but live a life in pursuit that is directly opposite of him? He came to the needy, came to the lowly, born in a manger, lowly. And they stand as they love him and say, by the way, I think he's a little farther up. Which one of us do you think is the greatest? <laughs> he know, it wasn't like, well, he's, he's a little further up. Yeah, he's out of earshot. No, he knows their reasoning. Point being, we can, you know, live a life of self-preservation among one another. You know, tell the parts we want told, keep the parts we don't which there's varying degrees of appropriateness to that. I'm not suggesting that airing out all your dirty laundry is the best thing to do and demonstrates humility. Sometimes it's just inappropriate airing out of dirty laundry. (laughs) So there's proper distinctions to draw between humility and, you know, a lack of appropriateness, I guess. But I don't think we most oftentimes struggle with where's the boundary on appropriate information we tend to play close to the chest for self-preservation and in our own minds, self-promotion. This is what he's saying to them can't be the case. To serve the lowly, to care for the afflicted because that's where, again, bringing the child close to him is the whole picture. Close to me, in other words, whom I identify with, and then you in your conversation. That's the picture our Lord is drawing here. So perhaps the Lord is revealing in our own lives at various points in times this same proximity relationship where he's trying to draw us as well into greater humility, into repentance and self-promotion. Sometimes he does that within your life, and perhaps he's doing that right now in your life in particular relationships, but he does it in proximity to us as well. Have you ever come into contact with a person, to a saint, who is living in those moments as you know you yourself also should be? Have you ever had one of those moments where you're with a saint, you, it, maybe it's a prayer meeting, maybe you're in conversation, and there is a point of revelation there where you're close in proximity to one who is indeed walking with the Lord in the way that you know you should be. And there's a revealer there. There's a kindness to that. There's a mercy to that to wake you up from your self-promoting way from your lack of acknowledging your inadequacy and thinking yourself wholly adequate. He does grace work, like draw you into proximity of someone that is a great encouragement to you, that reveals to you, what am I doing? 
That's the picture of our Lord, drawing this child in and looking at these men and saying, I'm closer right here in all that I am to this child than to you in the path and discussion you're having. What do we do in those moments is important as well once those points of revelation are made. Do we get out of them as quickly as possible and self-soothe our conscience that things aren't really as bad as we may thought at that moment? Or do we dig our heels in and think, I'm justified in being angry. I'm justified in being despondent in my emotions spiritually because of what the Lord is doing to me. Or do we, in humility, repent and invest with those that can encourage and build us up in the faith, even if it hurts a bit? Do we get out of those revelations? Do we get out of those moments in relationships? Or do we humbly invest in them? That's an important piece of ongoing discipleship as well. You know, discipling someone, being discipled by someone. Sometimes that simply can take place in, in, in books, reading books of godly saints who have gone before, testimonies, biographies that inspire, lectures and sermons that have been recorded. A rich way to be discipled, to be in the text of Scripture. Where will that sense of a lack of self-awareness and sinful pride, how will it be removed? But also by the study of Holy Scripture. In the grand narrative of life, you'll find that you're not as big and as significant as you think you are. And then you'll hear and it'll make sense where Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, I think, you have to double check me there, speaks about his own weaknesses and says that there is the power of the Lord made perfect in my weakness, not in my power. That's at the heart of the gospel. There's two additional illustrations I'll just briefly follow through with here for a a couple of moments remaining. He gives two more illustrations to help them understand their need for humility and ours as well. A sense of biblically knowing who we really are and not overestimating our significance. He does so in the next episode, so it's not over with the disciples yet. Again, you get through verse 46 and 48 and you think, man, are they just broken down? You know, they're just, these guys get it now. And you think, we do too. But we don't. Look at immediately uh, following. I don't know how much time lapsed necessarily here, but look at the next episode, 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Now, Again, another point here of the second issue is if we could look at verse 46 through 48 and we could kind of look at the pride of place is kind of personal is what I would say. Like, like what we're looking at is individual men at this point in time. So if we could so label it, we'd call that one, that episode there kind of personal needs for humility. And then I would maybe jump down in the next text and say the second illustration is they could use a good dose of ecclesiastical humility. Or, or what we would say maybe denominational, non-denominational humility. Do you see how? Look at the text just briefly. Again, he answered, hey, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. Okay. And we tried to stop him. All right. What was taking place? Well, 
He doesn't follow with us. Now, we don't have access to who this individual is and exactly what's taking place. Maybe it was a disciple from earlier on, in the, in, in the, within the two-year span of ministry, someone sent out. I, I, I don't know exactly who this individual is and what he is doing, but he is casting out demons, and then you see it right in there, and he's doing it in Jesus' name. But don't worry, we told him to stop. Um, okay, and then verse 50 but Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Thinking of this together is a little bit of a spirit of tribalism. That is, I think it's been exasperated or, 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 or uh, made to the point of almost critical mass. A spirit of tribalism. And I think it's, it's coming to critical mass because of social media. That's just my take. That's my two cents. That you can form a tribe or a group so fast through hitting the thumbs up button. And then, and then you create your subcategory of tribalism. And, and, then, and then ministries and their programs and their community and their DNA and all the things that go with it can create a spirit of tribalism, you know, in other words, there's a spirit, we're the school of the prophets, as with the disciples. Hey, we're the ones doing the work of the ministry, and by the way, everybody knows, wisdom perishes with us. I think, well, not necessarily. Jesus indicates here that this attitude of tribalism, exclusivity over ministerial rights, is completely wrong and absolutely unnecessary. There's a joke that goes something like this. I hope not to butcher it because it really brings the point home. I'm not the greatest joke teller, but um, to illustrate the point, um, a, a, a man dies, right, and goes to heaven. And you're familiar with that introduction to a religious joke, aren't you? <laughs> Great. So a man dies and goes to heaven, and he's in the corridor of heaven. He's walking down, and, and again, all of this is just, remember, a joke. Um, so he's, he, he's, he's going down the corridor of heaven, and Peter has given him a tour of the place, right? So he's going down, and he sees multiple doors. He's walking down this hall, and it's just a long hall full of doors. And Peter starts showing him, opening the doors, and saying, you know, hey, check this out. And, and he opens the door there, and it's the Pentecostals. And, and Pentecostals are doing what Pentecostals do, and things are happening in, 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 the, in the service. And this is heaven. This is, and the man is just standing there taking it all in, right? And then it closes the door, and the man continues down the pathway. And then it, another door opens, and there's some Baptists in there. And he sees the Baptists, and the Baptists are doing what Baptists do, kind of maybe standing singing hymns. The, the, there's the Baptists are standing there singing there, and, and everyone's formally arrayed the way they ought to be. And then he opens yet another door, and then it's the Nazarenes. And the Nazarenes are having a great contemporary service and having a ball. And then he takes him down and he misses a door. And the man says, wait, um, we missed one door. You didn't open that. Who's in there? And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. We don't ever open that door. That's the reformed. They think they're the only ones up here. <laughs> right? And, and so it, it is, it, it, the reality is that that is the tribalism um, uh, uh, that, that 
I think it was Ray Ramon, that guy from Everybody Loves Raymond, I think he said about his own show, you, you laugh because it's funny, but you cry because it's true. And, 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 and that, that's life in American evangelicalism. That, 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 that's life in the American church. Is a spirit of, hey, don't worry, I got him down on this post. It's all for you, Lord, because I told him to stop. And like, well, okay. Why? Because he parsed a verb different than you. He plays some instruments you don't like. He holds some view that's inappropriate. You took it upon yourself to slay him for me? Thank you. Wait, wait, wait. Tribalism. He said, it's unnecessary. Ecclesial humility as well upon the disciples in this moment of you need greater humility and self-awareness. You're not the only people out there. Finally, there's the last illustration of our need for greater self-awareness, whether it's personally, which it is, all of us would admit. It's ecclesially, all of us can feel that way about our church, at least the pastors can for sure. Um, You're kind of setting that goal, putting out that vision, so you're kind of defensive about it, and it can lead to bloodshed. But finally, the last illustration of that need for humility as well is on mission. There's a missional humility attached to it as well. Look at the final episode where they just need to continue to get this, this sense of self-awareness about who they are and how significant they really are and what, the gospel, what stands at the heart of the gospel is a cross, a cruciformed life and existence of humility. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And by the way, that's the rest of Luke's gospel is going to have that theater. Uh, that, that's the context of where we go from here in Luke's gospel is we're now moving toward Jerusalem. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Uh, and, and why did they go there? The text says to make preparations for Jesus. So he's on his way now to Jerusalem and there's a place where they can land and get some rest as they make their movements. So there, some guys go ahead of them and say, hey, we're coming and our Lord is coming. He needs some preparations. We need a place to be. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him. No, 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 we don't want anything to do with him here. Now, the question is, why, right? You're asking, well, why would they not receive him? With the answer there in verse 53, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. And you know how the Samaritans and the Jews just didn't really get along. And it goes way back into the Old Testament text. These are, they're not on friendly terms. So if he's on his way to Jerusalem, we don't have any room for him. We don't want him anywhere near here. Just you're going to have to keep walking. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> right. What? Um, right, so they were just on the Mount of Transfiguration and maybe they were fired up by seeing Elijah there. Remember, call down fire. You know, kill this 50, kill this 50 with fire. Say, so, you know, hey, you know, they just saw him on the Mount Transfiguration, James and John, and say, you know what? You know, I'm feeling some strength. I'm feeling some power. We saw Elijah. Remember what he did? Okay, then, if they're not nice, do you want us to call down fire and kill all of them? Just incinerate them on the spot. 
And of course there would be a question if it isn't by Elijah's inspiring moment on the mountain, where exactly they got the concept that they themselves were about to call down fire from heaven. Right? So if we look back in the earlier portions of chapter 9, he gave them many things, but really he took everything away from them. And in chapter 9 for that mission, we see no endowment with the power to call down fire. So yet they're feeling fired up, literally. Verse, 50, verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. Guys, if we look earlier in the chapter upon you, we see him rebuke you in 41. We see him rebuke you yet again without acknowledging it in 47 and 48. We see him rebuke you yet again in verse 50. And now in 55, episode after episode, he turned and rebuked them. And then they just decided to go to another village instead of incinerating everyone in this one. Does that seem pretty common sense? Like, we could, yes, incinerate them or go to another village, <laughs> right? And it's that same sense, I think, that is somewhat helpful. And again, I don't mean to be overly simplistic. Um, but I think as we look at where we've been in the last year, right, um, in, in, in the conversation of American culture, American politics, and the culture wars that are always going around and about us, I think there's something to be said there about how in mission and the great co-mission, there is a call for mercy, there, there is some form of uh, not putting upon folks who don't lay hold of Christ through faith and expecting from them to receive from them virtues that are consistent with those who lay hold of Christ through faith. And if you don't act like it, we're going to call fire down on you. Of course, we all know we don't have that power, but it doesn't stop us verbally. And it doesn't stop us in our own psychology. I'm really thinking the best thing to happen to this person right here on this program is to have fire rain down from heaven and consume them. Or in our microcosmic relationships, when we disagree with someone, when we engage with unbelievers, is the commission marked in your own evangelism, in your own sense of endurance and patience, is it marked by mercy? and marked by engagement or is immediately I wish heaven would consume you today though you might not verbalize that there is a need among the disciples to look yet again to Christ where the heart of the gospel stands the cross and remember anyone to come after me laying hold of me by grace through faith alone, without merit, will follow this cruciform existence as well. And in doing so, seek humility and mercy, obedience, not greatness. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless to our hearts the text of Holy Scripture this morning, that you would help us in our constant need for humility at every pass. Lord, none of us would say we're without pride. Not one of us. So, Lord, we just look to you and without merit, 
And without promises, we simply rely on you and ask, Lord, provide by your grace through faith, humility to accompany our pathway. Allow us to repent of places of pride and arrogance. Choose mercy over judgment. In Christ's name we pray, amen.